Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. So good to be with you all this morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles, I invite you to go ahead and open with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we will be. And we're just going to be looking at one verse, namely the last verse of the chapter, verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For you note takers, the title of the message this morning is The Ground of Our reconciliation the ground of our reconciliation and as you turn there before we read I just want to thank our elders for the opportunity to preach God's word Um, I love to preach I also love to be able to be a help any way I can to our elders uh, who labor so faithfully for us it's good um, speaking from experience as a pastor it's always good when you can sit in here preaching yourself and The Lord's blessed our church with an abundance of preachers, not just serving the eldership, but uh, lay preachers as well who are able to come alongside our elders and give them a hand whenever that uh, is needed. So um, thank you guys for this opportunity. Um, And thank you, church family, for just the way you've loved on us. Um, I consider this a special joy. I I preached last week in a a church uh, down the road that's in between, uh, kind of in a transition phase and Uh, I love preaching at any church, but nothing beats preaching to the folks that you're in covenant with as covenant family, loving the Lord, and seeking to make him known. And so uh, we thank you all so much. Taylor and I love you guys, and I count it a special joy to preach Christ to you. Well, let's look at what Paul says to us under the inspiration of the Spirit in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Paul writes, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. On Tuesday, November 12th, 1918, the headline of the London newspaper, the Daily Mail consisted of just two words. It's over. The great war or what we now refer to as World War I, had come to an end. When the war broke out in 1914, many people thought around the world that this would just last a few weeks, maybe a few months. No one anticipated that it would last over four years and that millions upon millions of lives would be lost. The war proved to be the bloodiest conflict in human history up to that point. That's part of the reason why I say up to that point, that it's World War I, we had World War II come after it. But at that time, when the war had come to an end, the greatest desire of the world at that point was met. They wanted peace. They wanted the fighting to stop. They wanted the hostility to come to an end. And for at least the time being, it did. Well, as great as that peace was, it doesn't compare to the peace that Paul proclaims here at the end of 2 Corinthians 5 that has come to the believer in Christ Jesus. In verse 18 of this chapter, Paul declares that God has reconciled us to 
himself. That is, he has ended the conflict between us and him. And he's restored us into fellowship with himself. Due to the rebellion of our first parents in the Garden of Eden, we are all born into this world with sinful hearts that are inclined toward rebelling against our God. He's made us to love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength. He's made us to love our neighbor as ourself. He's made us to do that perfectly for all of our days. That's our purpose. But yet we've rebelled against that purpose. We've set ourselves against him. And as a result, because we have broken his commandment, because we have broken his law, we stand before him guilty on our own. That was true for us, church, and it's true for all people this side of the fall. But for us who are in Christ Jesus, Paul declares this is no longer the case. We were once God's enemies, but now we're God's people because he has reconciled us to himself. Paul goes on to elaborate on this reality in verse 19. He says that for all who are in Christ, God is no longer counting our trespasses against us. He no longer regards us as criminals who've broken his law. He no longer holds our sins against us, but regards us as his dearly beloved people. Indeed, as the psalmist writes in Psalm 103 verse 10, God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. In Christ Jesus, indeed, our great war is over. God has declared to us, it is over. We have peace with God now and forever. And here at the end of chapter 5, in the final verse, which we just read, Paul reminds us why this is. He reminds us what the ground or the foundation of this peace is. He tells us, this is why you are reconciled. And in this verse, Paul doesn't point to anything in us. He doesn't point to anything we have done. He doesn't point to our faithfulness to Jesus or our growth in Jesus. Paul doesn't even say it's because of our faith in Jesus that we're reconciled. Rather, Paul points solely to what God has done through Jesus for us. Here Paul reminds us of the double transaction that has taken place through Jesus, one which theologians have often referred to as the great exchange. Paul reminds us in this text that we are reconciled to God because first Christ received our punishment and second we have received his righteousness. Christ received our punishment We've received his righteousness. That's what Paul is declaring in this text. That's somewhat of the big idea of this message. And it's also our outline. These two realities are the two points of the sermon. So it's a pretty easy sermon to follow, I pray. So I pray as we walk through these two realities, church, that you will be assured once again, that you will be reminded and encouraged of why it is that you are reconciled to God. And I pray that If your hope and trust are not in Christ, today would be the day of reconciliation for you. All right, let's dive in. First, Paul reminds us in this verse that Christ received our punishment. Christ received our punishment. Look with me again at the first half of verse 21. Paul says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. 
The he at the beginning of verse 21 refers to the same one Paul speaks of at the end of verse 20, where he says that God has given us this ministry of reconciliation and we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. Then verse 21, for our sake he, that is God, specifically God the Father. He, God the Father, made him, the one who knew no sin, God the Son, to be sin. Paul declares that Jesus knew no sin. Now, let's clear the air a little bit. This being Trinity Sunday, it's good to dive into a little bit of Trinitarian theology. Jesus, being the eternal Son of God and his deity, has always been sinless. God does not sin. In him is light and there is no darkness at all. He's perfectly free from sin in his very essence. He is light. He's one with the Father in spirit, perfect in all of his ways, never compromising his own character. But here Paul's referring to Jesus in terms of his life in the flesh. He's speaking of Jesus living in his incarnation. When Jesus came, without ceasing to be God, he became a man. He was truly God, and being truly God, he became truly man. And in his living as a man, he knew no sin. Think about that for a moment. Not a single one of us can truly say that we've loved the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves perfectly every moment of our lives. We've all failed. But Jesus did not. In his flesh... Being truly man, he got tired just as we do. He needed sleep just as we do. He faced temptation. But yet, he never once wavered from perfect love for his father. As Hebrews 7.26 tells us, Jesus was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. His record wasn't blank. It was perfect. He perfectly and perpetually fulfilled the law. He was righteous. And he knew no sin. He perfectly kept the law in order, Paul says, to be made sin for our sake. That is, on our behalf or in our place. That is, for the sake of these Corinthian believers, for the sake of Paul, his mission team, church family for our sake, and for the sake of every believer throughout the ages. He who knew no sin was made sin for the sake, on the behalf of, in the place of his people. Now this doesn't mean that at some point Jesus actually became a sinner. Doesn't mean that Jesus at some point broke the law of God. Rather when Paul tells us that Jesus was made to be sin, he's emphasizing that Jesus was regarded by the Father as a sinner. He was counted by the Father as a lawbreaker, treated as if he had broken the divine law. Though he never did, he was viewed and treated by the Father as if he had failed to love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, Jesus was treated as if he lived our life. He was treated as if he had lived our life, as if he had been in our shoes. And this treating Jesus as a lawbreaker transpired in his suffering and death at the cross. 
As a church, we regularly remember the facts of the cross. Often we recite the Apostles' Creed, which I love so much, and it reminds us that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. After being beaten brutally to the point, as Isaiah 52, 14 tells us, that his form was beyond human semblance, our Lord left a bloody mess, was condemned to carry his cross to the site of his execution where he was stripped naked of his clothes, nailed through his, uh, through his wrists and his feet, lifted up on that cross where it was set in a fixed hole, and he hung there until he slowly suffocated to death hours later. To ensure he was dead, one of the Roman soldiers drove a spear through his side, ensuring that he was indeed dead. But the suffering and death of Christ isn't significant because of those facts alone. There were countless thousands who died on a Roman cross. In the eyes of Rome, Jesus was just another crucifixion number. What sets the death of Jesus apart, though, is what transpired here as he suffered. As he suffered, as he was beaten, as he hung on that cross, God was pouring out his divine wrath on the Son in our place. That's why he went to the cross. His death was not merely the result of Judas handing him over to the religious leaders, the religious leaders handing him over to Pilate, and Pilate handing him over to the cross. Though that is all true, it's all fact. No, he was delivered up to death by the Father. And he was delivered up, as Paul says in Romans 4.25, for our trespasses. This is what Jesus meant, by the way, when he declares those famous words in John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his son. He handed his son over to judgment. The father sent his son, he gave his son, so that his son, having known no sin, would be regarded and punished as a sinner in the place of his people. That's why we read in the Gospels, Jesus quoting in agony from the cross the opening words of Psalm 22.1, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The beloved son took on the flesh to keep the law, to die in the place of us lawbreakers. By doing so, he's completely satisfied the requirement for divine justice. We sang about that earlier, didn't we? On that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. He took the cup that was reserved for us, the bitter cup full of God's wrath, and he drank it completely. Not a single drop remains. That's why Jesus cried out the loud voice just before he breathed his last, it is finished. It's done. It's over. Justice was served, but it was served to Jesus instead of us. So therefore, for us who are in Christ, we can truly say, as Paul does in Romans 8, 1, that there is no condemnation for us. Not no condemnation down the road, but no condemnation right now. We can truly claim the words of Isaiah 53, verse 5, for ourselves. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are what? Healed. Condemnation is gone forever. I'm reminded of a story I once read about a young boy who loved to count. 
The young boy would count socks in his drawer, peas on his plate, cars on the highway. He loved numbers. He loved to count. And one day he asked his father, Daddy, can God count? His father said, Yes, son, God can count. The son asked, What does he count? The father replied, He counts the hairs on our heads. Every hair? The son asked. Yes, every hair, the father answered. The son asked, What else does God count? The father said, When we get sad or hurt and we cry, God counts our tears. Every tear? Yes, every tear, the father answered. The son thought a minute, and then he asked, Is there anything that God doesn't count? The father said, Yes, there is one thing God does not count. The son asked, Well, what does he not count? The father took his son's hand and led him down the hall. He pointed to the family's crucifix on the wall, depicting Jesus on the cross. And the father said to his son, On the day Jesus died, God stopped counting all our sins. He added them all up and gave them to Jesus. He will never count them again. Every sin, the son asked. Yes, every single one, the father answered. Dear Christian, that is true for you this morning. Never again will we hear a word concerning our condemnation. Think about that. Every day, you and I, we continue to show ourselves deserving of divine justice because every day we rebel against our God. Every day we fail to love him as he made us to love him. Every day we fail to love our neighbor as we ought to. But though that is true, though we still fail to do that, we will never fall under condemnation again, ever. We're forever released from the guilt we were under. And because of that, because this justice was served to Jesus in our place, we're reconciled. Indeed, if this had not happened, we would still be condemned. We would still be guilty and we would have no shot of reconciliation. Peace would not just be outside our reach, it would be flat out impossible. Christ did, in fact, receive our punishment at the cross. Therefore, there is no more condemnation, and therefore, we are reconciled. But we aren't reconciled solely because Christ received our punishment at the cross. Amen, that's great. It's essential. We can't be reconciled without it. But there is more to this. Paul tells us, secondly, and finally in this passage, that we're reconciled to God through Christ because we have received his righteousness. Christ received our punishment. We have received his righteousness. The second half of verse 21 begins with the words, so that, which indicate a purpose, the end for which something is being done. Jesus did not die only to free us from condemnation. He didn't. It's true. He did do that. But that's not all there is. He did not just live and die so that our guilt may be removed from us. It's just one side of the coin. Now Paul says, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That phrase in him is speaking of our union with Christ by faith. It's synonymous with trusting in Christ or believing on Christ. Same idea. What Paul says is that by our union with Christ, in him and in him alone, we become the righteousness of God. So what does that mean? 
Well, first we have to ask, what does it mean to be righteous? Well, God is righteous in that he always acts in in perfect accordance with his attributes and his nature. God never compromises himself. He never acts out of step with his holy law. To then be a righteous person created by God means that you perfectly and perpetually uphold the law. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. So we know then when Paul says in Christ we become the righteousness of God, it cannot mean that we magically stop sinning and all of a sudden become perfectly obedient. Even if that were the case, we wouldn't fulfill the law because law isn't fulfill the law 50% of the time or 20% of the time. It's all of the days of your life. So it can't be that. We've never been, nor will we ever be righteous people in word and deed this side of heaven. When Paul says that in Jesus, we become the righteousness of God, he's using the term in the same way he does when he says that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. He's speaking in legal terms. Just as Jesus was credited with our sinful record at the cross, through faith in Christ, God now credits to us a righteous record. A perfect record of law-keeping. Whose record is it? Well, it's not ours. It's not your parents. It's not even your pastors. We have great pastors, but it's not their record. It's the record of Christ. It's the record of Christ. This is the end of Christ's redemptive work. Christ didn't just go to the cross to remove your guilt. Christ went to the cross so that his perfect record would be given to us in return. If all Jesus did was deliver us from our condemnation, we would still not have peace with God. We would be spiritual zeros. We would have a blank record. Praise God, that's true. Our sin would be gone. We would no longer be under condemnation. But we would not be reconciled to God. But Because to have peace with God, to be reconciled, We don't only need a sinless record, we need a perfect record. That's the only way anyone can be in fellowship with God. And that was the case from the beginning in the garden. When God established his covenant with Adam in the garden, he told him that on the day when he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would die. Death would come to Adam and all he represented, that is, all the human race, all who will descend from him. If Adam had obeyed, however, if he would have upheld God's law, there's life. Life for those who obey, death for those who do not. In other words, the stipulation was, do this and you will live. Those were the terms. Of course, Adam rebelled, death came to him and to us all. And even though none of us this side of the fall can measure up to God's demand, that's still what's required by God to have life. To have eternal life, you must keep the law. You must be perfect. Jesus makes this same point to a lawyer in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 28. Listen to what Luke tells us. It's a familiar passage. He says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Keep the law, you will have eternal life. Keep the law, you'll be reconciled to God. As Jesus said in Matthew 5.48, we are to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. Bad news is we can't do that. It's meant to be crushing. It's meant to drive us to despair. It's bad news. But the good news is Jesus did measure up. Jesus did keep the law. He lived a perfect life to die under our judgment and in return give us his righteousness. He came to keep the law and meet the standard for us so that through faith alone in him alone, his righteousness would be credited to us. And now by faith, that record has been credited to us. What's the result of that? The result of that is when God looks at you, he no longer sees the ruined life like we sang about earlier. He sees the perfect life of his son. He sees you as if you perfectly kept the law. He sees you as if you never committed the sins that you did this morning, but if, as if you perfectly love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the result. That's the result. We're declared righteous. We're clothed in his righteousness, and God declares us to be righteous because of that exchange. One of my favorite films of all time is Batman Begins, the first of the Nolan Batman films. Some of you may be wondering where I'm going with this. I'm a huge Batman fan. I'm not just working in a Batman illustration. Um, maybe I am. But in this movie, we're given the origin story of how Bruce Wayne became Batman, and that's really why I love the movie. Uh, and in the movie, we find a young Bruce Wayne. He's about to board a merchant ship to leave Gotham. And he's trying to get rid of any trace of his identity. And he's standing by this burn barrel at the Gotham Harbor, and he's throwing in his debit cards, his credit cards, his IDs you know, of all sorts, throws in the whole wallet after a while. And then on the other side of the burn barrel, as he's doing this, he notices this homeless man clothed in this tattered coat. And Bruce Wayne's wearing this really expensive, nice coat, the kind that a billionaire wears. And he takes notice of this homeless man, and he takes off his very expensive coat and exchanges it with the homeless man and takes his filthy rags upon himself. He takes the filthy coat off the poor man, gives him his priceless coat. This beggar is no longer clothed in his filth, but he's clothed in the garments of the rich man. Pictures for us what Paul is declaring in this text. Jesus took our filthy rags and he gives to us his perfect robes of righteousness. As we read earlier from Isaiah, he's clothed us in the garments of salvation. He declares us to be righteous. He declares us to have met the standard because the son has met the standard in our place. And the reason that is true, we can't miss this, the reason that is true is because of the reality of the resurrection. As Paul tells us in Romans 4.25, Christ was raised for our justification. We're declared righteous on the basis of his life because the tomb is empty. In his resurrection, Christ was vindicated by the Spirit, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16. That is, he was proven 
and declared by the Father to be our sinless, righteous substitute. Death has no hold on the righteous. And so if Jesus doesn't rise again, what does it prove? He's not righteous. He's not really sinless. And therefore, he's not really our substitute. And therefore, to trust in him is not just foolish, it's absolutely absurd. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 that if Christ has not been raised, then you're still in your sins and your faith is in vain. But Christ has been raised. He is risen and lives forevermore. And so he is sinless, he is righteous, and he is our substitute. Our sin really has been removed from us. His righteousness really has been given to us. And we really have been justified before the Father forever. Permanent, final, never changing. Think about the sin this morning that remains in your heart. Think about how often you rebel against God. Think about how just this morning you failed to meet the standard God requires. I got bad news that's going to continue to be your circumstance until you make it home. The same Paul who wrote this verse also wrote in Romans 7, 18 and 19, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. True for Paul and it's true for us. Every day when we look in the mirror, we're reminded that we fail, we fail, we fail, we don't measure up. But in Christ, we don't just look in the mirror and realize that. We look in the mirror and realize, yes, I fail, yes, I fail, but Jesus didn't fail. We deserve to have our verdict overturned. We deserve to have our verdict go from being righteous to unrighteous. But it never will be. Not today, not tomorrow, not ever because of Jesus. As the Apostle John reminds us in 1 John 2, 1, I love this verse. If anyone does sin, he's talking about Christians here. So all of us fit the bill because every Christian still sins. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous. I love that. That's who represents us. That's who pleads our case. That's who stands in the gap for us. Forever our guilt has been removed. Forever we're clothed in his righteousness and therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord forever. This is so good. As we come to a close this morning, I'm reminded of the opening stanza and chorus of Edward Moat's only hymn. It's only hymn he ever wrote and I don't think you can get much better than this. You might recognize these words. Here's the opening stanza and chorus. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. In many ways, these words could be a summary of what Paul wants us to see in this text. That's what he wants us as believers to, to recognize. That Christ and Christ alone is our solid rock. And that we would lean into him all the more.
Rest in him all the more. Church, these words are for you. They aren't just to share with the unbelieving, though we should. We have good news to proclaim. But these words are for you. Paul wrote these words originally, first and foremost, to Christians. Why? Because our faith is not perfect. We're not spiritually invincible. As sinners, we question, we wrestle, we doubt. Maybe it's because of the trials we're facing. Maybe it's because of the sin we struggle with. Maybe it's because of what others say. Maybe it's because of the temptation of the deceiver, Satan. But oftentimes in our flesh, we doubt. And in those moments of doubt, we tend to look inward. We tend to look inward to ourselves first to assure us that we're right with God. Let me just say, don't do that. When those storms of doubt arise, don't look inward first and foremost. Yes, your growth in Christ can encourage you. It's awesome to look back as a Christian and see the ways the Lord has grown you. But that's not the ground of your assurance. If we look inward for assurance, we're never going to find it. After all, where in verse 21 does Paul mention us doing any type of action to contribute to our justification and our peace with God? Nowhere, right? So if we would look inward to assure ourselves we're reconciled, we'll never find it. But Christ, on the other hand, when we look to him, there's unending assurance to be found. Because he's done it all. When doubts arise, church, and trust me, they will. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow. But on this side of heaven, your faith is imperfect. It will come. But in those times of doubt, we don't look to ourselves. We don't look to our works. We don't look to our growth. We look to Christ alone. He is the assurance that we are reconciled to God. I love what Martin Luther said. He said, when I look at myself, I do not see how I could be saved. But when I look at Jesus, I do not see how I can be lost. Therefore, church, may we rest in the finished work of our Savior and rejoice knowing that we're no longer under condemnation. We're clothed in his righteousness. We're justified by God and we're reconciled to God. Truly, God has reconciled us to himself all because of Christ. That's only true if we're in Christ. If you're here this morning and your hope and trust are not in Christ alone, to make you right with God. As, as Paul says in verse 20, I urge you, be reconciled to God this morning. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing that you can bring to the table. No amount of good works can undo your guilty verdict, nor can they make you righteous. On your own, you are eternally doomed. No other way to say it. There's no hope on your own to be made right with God. But in Christ, there is hope for every sinner who will look to him, and that includes you, if you will look to him. He's taken on the punishment of sin and gives his righteousness to every sinner who comes to him. Whoever comes to him, he says, I will never cast out. If you have questions, find me after the service. Talk to one of our elders. Talk to the person next to you. You are in a great place to be an unbeliever. You can't be in a better place on a Sunday and not be a Christian, then here. We would love to talk with you about Jesus, but don't neglect so great a salvation. Look to Christ and be saved.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ's work for for us is enough. We're reconciled because you demonstrated your love for us by sending your son, who lived the perfect life we can never live and died the death we deserve. Thank you, Father, for loving us so much. Jesus, thank you for doing that work for us. What a savior you are. Holy Spirit, continue to encourage our hearts this morning. Anchor us in the truths of these texts as we continue to march closer and closer to our home. These things I ask in Jesus' name, amen.